stand and wait. And uh, I know that there will be some more people coming, um, but we shall begin anyway. Um, Dr. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll adjust them. Um, Dr. Taylor's had a great morning this morning. Um, she uh, um, thought that I forgot to tell her that there's no breakfast at the cafeteria and that you've actually got to go over to the Sabbath schools and stuff. So halfway through the, the talk, if she falls over or something like that through lack of food, then um, we'll just prop her back up again and keep her talking. Oh, what do we do? I don't know. So anyway, she's uh, had a bit of a hard morning this morning and we're going to have an early lunch, I think. So we will get straight into it and... Uh, What's happening today is um, the physiology of forgiveness and then three o'clock this afternoon, think on these things, thoughts, energy, health and success and then four o'clock, cellular memory, uh, past, present and future. And so um, there's a whole heap of stuff still to come and I think that we'll enjoy that. Thanks very much. Let's welcome Dr. Tyler. I don't know what he said because I can't talk and listen at the same time. So it might have been what happened. It might not have. <laughs> All right. Good morning. I've only done this topic a couple of times before because the research is very, very new. Oh, a little bit more. A little more. Thank you. Boy, isn't it wonderful you've got someone who does your bidding? That's... Yeah, no, a chair works just fine. Don't talk to me about not being tall. I've never been tall enough to reach my own head. And when I get new research, I need to work through it to see if there's anything I personally need to do in relation to that research before I start presenting it. Because it doesn't really come across too well if you're talking about things that you haven't worked through. So I had a little working through to do on this topic. It's actually becoming one of my favorite topics. So you're hearing it for the first time in Australia. And that I've titled it, Physiology of Forgiveness, Can You Afford to Be Unforgiving? Actually, I'm going to change that and, and make the subtitle be, How Big Is Your Cemetery? <laughs> so the current research is that <clears throat> people who are unable to forgive have a difficult time forgiving struggle with relationships, and that should not be a surprise. But I haven't always thought about it in that sense before. So the people that come to talk to me who are struggling with relationships are often hostile and bitter and sad and unforgiving. But that's not all. Work by Dr. Herbert Benson has identified something called the physiology of forgiveness. And this is exactly his statement. There's something called the physiology of forgiveness. Being unable to forgive other people's faults is harmful to one's health. According to Dr. Benson, that began his search for the connection between health and unforgiveness. Because as far as I know, we've never really thought specifically about that before. Although I will show you a little bit later, since this is Sabbath morning, and as I told Dr. French, I didn't realize that Australians didn't eat breakfast Sabbath morning, <laughs> which is probably the reason that men fall asleep in church. Not enough glucose to their brain. <laughs> so get up and move around anytime you want to, especially if you haven't had breakfast. So I've, I've put some Bible texts with this presentation. Uh, when I did it before, I did it to people who have no 
interest or affiliation with religion, which are, is the most of the people I speak to. So I went back and put some, some text to this, and I've asked my webmaster to load it onto my website so that you can go and get the slides if you want to. And my website is just my name, arlenetaylor.org. Remember, if you're looking for me, and there are other Arlene Taylors out there, some of whom you may not want to look for. It's been interesting to Google my name and see who pops up. <clears throat> if you're looking for me, forget.tv, forget.net, forget.com. I'm an org. ArleneTaylor.org. And you can click on PowerPoints <clears throat> and you'll be able to find the slides. I think it's important to start by identifying what forgiveness is not. Because in large sample studies, Dr. Benson found that people thought forgiveness was all kinds of things that it is not. So what, what forgiveness is not involves several things. It certainly does not involve condoning bad behavior. Just because you forgive someone does not mean that you are condoning their behavior or the injury or the damage that was done. It does not absolve a criminal of his crime. And periodically we, we find stories about somebody who had something awful happen to a family member and now the, the criminal's on death row and the parents forgive the criminal. But he doesn't go off death row. Forgiveness is not about that. It does not waive, you do not waive your right to compensation. Somebody crashes into you with a car, you don't waive your right to have that person's insurance pay for the repair of your car. It definitely does not mean choosing to reconcile and put yourself back in an environment where there's abuse. And I think as a church, we need to get that. My brain's opinion, which is all I have, that's all you have, I believe that we are least a brain and body to use during our sojourn on this planet. And if you were leasing a lovely vehicle, I happen to like BMWs, if you were leasing a BMW, you're given a whole list of things to do to take care of it. And if you return it uncared for, you've got a huge penalty. I believe we've each been leased a brain and body to use on this planet. Eventually, we're going to turn it back in. I have no evidence that we're going to take this vehicle anywhere with us. We turn it back in. And the Bible is really clear that this vehicle is more than thought and transportation. It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. We are to protect this vehicle from abuse. It is not okay to allow other people to abuse this temple of the Holy Ghost. And we haven't gotten that. You know, somebody's being battered in their home and well-meaning but totally unenlightened people say, well, pray about it and go back and try again. Oh, no. If you've got your vehicle parked in a parking lot and you know that somebody comes in there and scratches it with a key, you're an absolute idiot to park there again. So we need to take another look at that. So forgiveness does not send you back to an environment in which you are being abused. The temple of the Holy Spirit is being abused. It doesn't deny the other person's responsibility for whatever they did. That's their responsibility. Forgiveness doesn't absolve them of that. And vengeance is kind of interesting. Not too long ago, I took one of these little cotton swabs and swabbed the inside of my cheek and got some white blood cells and sent it off to have my DNA done. And it's been really fun. I'm getting emails from people all over the world saying, I think I'm related to you. That's just so interesting. Anyway, it turns out that I've got uh, some ancestors who were definitely French because 
my mother's half French. But it turns out I may have a couple of them that emigrated to Corsica. So what's Corsica known for? Vendettas. It's fascinating. You know, you read some of the stories. Uh, you ask this group of people who are trying to do dirt to the other group of people, what, what's the reason for this? Well, my family hates their family. Really? Well, how did that start? I don't know. Well, when did it start? Oh, I don't know, six or eight generations back. So now you're trying to kill each other, and you don't even know the precipitating event? Hmm, we could talk about IQ. Well, it appears I have a couple of Corsican relatives. And when I think of Corsica, I think of vengeance. And so when you are angry and you think someone has wronged you and you do them dirt... Well, that gets rid of unforgiveness because you've done the retribution. It's not forgiveness. It's got nothing to do with forgiveness. So here's a couple of definitions, and then I'll give you mine. Forgiveness can be defined. This is Dennis Marikas. I went to a seminar of his not long ago when he was talking about Benson's work. Forgiveness can be defined as the peace and understanding that comes from blaming that which hurt you less. You know, blaming never helps anything anyway, but you blame less. You take the life experience less personally. I mean, all of us have been injured. And you change your grievance story, meaning it's no longer just all about you. And victims have a grievance story, and it's all about them. They're the only person that has ever been hurt this badly before. Poor me, don't you feel sorry for me? No, not really. Two, straw hand. Forgiveness has everything to do with relieving oneself of the burden of being a victim. It's really important to get that. Relieving oneself of the burden of being a victim, letting go of the pain, and transforming oneself from victim to survivor. Huge difference. Valerie Harper, do you know that name? She's an actress in the States that was diagnosed about a year ago with a brain tumor and given three months to live. She's still alive. She says one of the reasons that she's still alive is because she is systematically forgiving herself and other people in her life. I don't know how long she'll live, but it's an interesting story. There's also a Dancing with the Stars television series in the States. Some of you may be familiar with that. She went on Dancing with the Stars this season, lasted four weeks. Just an amazing story. Forgiveness is giving up the wish that things could be different. I think that's pretty powerful. All right, this is my definition. It involves giving up your right to exact retribution from the individual who hurt or wronged you. You choose to think about something else rather than harboring all of this resentment and all the gory details and working memory, you refrain, you refrain from repeatedly bringing up the incident to yourself and others and rehearsing all the details. Yes, to recover, you need to do rehearsal a couple of times, but 11 years later and you're still rehearsing all the details, hello, immune system suppression big time, and you definitely move from victim to survivor position. I want to spend just a couple of slides on this because people wear their victimhood as a badge of honor. A victim mindset burns up norepinephrine. We talked about that earlier this week. It has everything to do with your mood and it has to do with how you manage stress. Wayne, can, can you tweak that thing a little bit more again, please? You probably have to prop him up on a chair again, but... I'm not visual, and, and bright lights just really impact my brain. Do it so that when I'm standing here, that it's not on me. Yeah, that's better. Oh, that's even... That's perfect! <laughs> Oh, give his brain a hand. I mean, <laughs> how come I didn't think of that? All right, the other one's fine. This one was a problem. All right, 
stops emotional growth and blocks recovery. Here's the deal. When you sustain an injury, especially when there's emotional trauma, you will stop growing emotionally. So there's a lot of 70-year-olds running around that have the emotional level of an 11-year-old or a 17-year-old, and it's really quite unattractive and very unhelpful because it keeps your emotional intelligence low. Being a victim is really less about what happened to you than about your feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and the fact that I'm special because I got injured. No. We live, on a, we live in a war zone. Everybody's injured. Nobody gets out of the war without being injured. Some people get killed. Some people get injured and recovered. Some people get injured less, but everybody gets injured. You're not special. And here's the problem with abuse. I was molested when I was 13 by an upstanding, card-carrying member of the church. Especially when you, ex- when you experience that kind of abuse that's also physical, not just somebody standing there and screaming at you. There comes a point in every person's mind during that experience when you realize that you can't do anything about it. You can't scream loud enough to be heard. You are not physically strong enough to protect yourself. And I can, I can go back in memory and I can tell you the second that my brain switched into, there's nothing I can do. Nothing. And that's true. The problem is, once the brain has switched into that hopeless, helpless stance, unless you become a survivor, you carry that position with you. And now you're hopeless and helpless about everything. And therefore, you never recover. You never grow up emotionally, and you never become the person that you were intended to become. So it's not being hit or, you know, molested or raped or... It's not the actual event that turns you into a victim. What turns you into a victim is your mind's decision that you're hopeless and helpless. And you only change that if you become a survivor. Moving into a survivor position, I think, is your badge of honor. Because anybody can be a victim. Not everybody is a survivor. It allows you to recover from the event so that I can simply say, I was molested when I was 13. Nothing changes. Not my heart rate, not my breathing. Um, I get no emotional sense in my gut. It's just a fact of something that happened to me because I've done all of that healing. You grow up emotionally. You know, for a lot of years I ran around with the emotional level of a (laughs) 13-year-old. You heal the wounds from that injury in any way you need to heal them, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, you name it. Now you can role model a survivor mindset, which is really the only way you help others. And I watch people, and I know this is going to sound judgmental. It is my brain's opinion. I watch people travel around the world and put entire seminars on about how to heal from being abused, and they're still in the victim stance. That doesn't help anybody. And since I believe that Christ is our ultimate role model, my brain's opinion is that he was abused more than any of us will ever experience, even remotely, and I find nothing in Scripture to ever give you the impression that he was a victim. He was always a survivor. So two types of forgiveness pop up in the literature, and this is brand new since uh, Benson's work. The first one is decisional forgiveness. I'd done that one and was actually kind of proud of myself for having done so. (laughs) It involves just a a cerebral conscious decision to say, you know, I'm not going to run around, you know, hanging on to unforgiveness. I'm going to forgive 
the person that did this to me. And you let go of the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and the grudges and the poor me and why me and all of that stuff. So that's step one. I'd done that one. Actually, as I said, I was rather proud of myself until we got the research and realized there was a step two. <laughs> Hadn't done that one. Well, in decisional forgiveness, you say, you know, I'm going to forgive so-and-so. And I really don't wish them on, you know, I don't wish anything bad happens to them. I don't wish they fall off a cliff on their Sabbath afternoon walk. But I will tell you, having done step one only, if someone had called me on my cell phone and said, you know, so-and-so just got run over by a bus, I would have gone, yes, couldn't happen to a nicer person. <clears throat> so step two is emotional forgiveness, and I had not gone there. And that's the reason I had to work with this information for a while before I was willing to even talk about it. It's the replacement of any negative feelings. You know, you can say you've forgiven somebody and still not wish them well. And it comes to the point where you've forgiven them and you go, you know, life can't be too great for them. I really wish them well, and I hope they heal and clean up their act and grow up and so on. That's a whole different can of worms. It involves psychophysiological changes to both your brain and your immune system. And this is where you get the better benefits to your health. You get far more positive benefits to your health with emotional forgiveness. We don't need to spend any time on this. You know that forgiveness is scriptural. Uh, lots of texts that indicate that. And so, especially Christians grow up learning that they're supposed to forgive so you can be forgiven. But that's only step one of the process. And then those of us who've been affiliated with religion, God's forgiveness is so emphasized that we look at this marvelous package of forgiveness and we go, I don't think I can do that. And you're right, you can't. And so we tend to think it's hopeless and we can't do anything. So how does God forgive? Well, he hurls your iniquities into the depths of the sea. You know, three-quarters of the states or more is nowhere near a sea. So that metaphor, some people haven't even seen an ocean. Uh, forgives and remembers your sins no more. Hmm, <laughs> that's not too human, is it? I was talking to a man the other day who said his wife claims she's forgiven him, but she really hasn't. And I said, so how do you know that? Well, he said, you know, I made this disastrous financial decision. Should have gotten some advice about it, but I didn't. And we lost about, I don't know, 350000 of our retirement income, which is a chunk of change. And to say that she was livid would be putting it mildly. But she said that she forgave him. All it meant was she couldn't shop as much. No problem with their home and food and stuff like that. But he says every time he does some little tiny thing that irritates her, she heats it up and serves it to him at the next meal again. So he is, she's always reminding him of his mistakes. That is not forgiveness. If you forgive, you shut up about it. And this is where Benson, and I don't know if he is affiliated with any religion. You know, many of these brain function researchers are actually agnostics. They're not atheists. You know, they say the brain is really too complex to have just evolved. I mean, that would be like dumping a bunch of, you know, hardware on the ground, and five million years later, you've got a Pentium. That's not going to happen. But we don't really know who the deity is or where it is or how it functions. And I find that very interesting. Many of them are very, very spiritual. 
So in case you think you can't be spiritual unless you're affiliated with religion, think again. So they're very spiritual. Benson was reading. He was in the Psalms, so he said, and he read this text. Forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And he goes, whoa, is there a connection between forgiveness and health? And that started him on his search for the physiology of forgiveness. So as I mentioned, forgiveness is interesting. Human beings tend to forgive grudgingly, under duress, sometimes take a long time to forgive. I think resentment and unforgiveness are like taking poison and expecting that it's going to kill the other person. So think back to the times you've been told to forgive. Are any of you eldest or only children? A few of you. Okay, I'm an eldest and the only girl. (laughs) I was a little princess for four whole years. It was really quite fun. First grandchild on either side of the family. It's nice to have everybody doting on you. Then my parents screwed up and had my brother. And he was a boil on the little landscape of my life because he was the adored son who would now carry on the family name. That ticked me off when I was four. I remember saying to my father, what's this thing about family name? Everybody says, oh, now you have a son to carry on the family name. What's that about? And he said, well, one of these days you'll get married and you'll take your husband's name. And I remember saying, I don't think so. And I've kept my maiden name professionally because my father gave me that name. How come I should give it up? I mean, that was a big deal when I was four. And then when I was working on my first PhD, I found that up until the 17th century, women always kept their own names. Did you know that? And then England decided that they would pass some laws about property. And uh, all women had to take their husband's last name because now you would know that she was his property. Oh, well, that was not an attractive thought for me. So (laughs) anyway, so my little brother, he could do no wrong. I was not particularly big on playing with dolls. I was much more at home in my father's workshop trying to figure out how things fit together and build things and so on. But, you know, I thought dolls were nice. I had a rag doll for probably the first seven or eight years of my life. And then a church member who felt sorry for the poor pastor's family gave me a doll that had a real china head. And that was kind of nice. I had her propped up in my, in my room. And one day I walked into the garage, and here's a little far court. <laughs> trying to pound a nail in a board and he's not using a hammer what's he using my doll the nail wasn't going anywhere pieces of her head were and I was ticked off so I ran and found my mother and said you know he's breaking my doll it belongs to me and what do you suppose her response was Nothing like that ever happened to you with a younger sibling. Oh, well, you're very lucky. (laughs) She goes, oh, you know, he's only four. He didn't know what he was doing. Tell me he didn't know what he was doing. He had to go in my room to get the hammer. Now, Arlene, be nice. Forgive your brother. Okay. I have no desire to be nice. None whatsoever. I hope you never catch me being nice. It is not one of my goals. I want to be graciously functional, but that's very different from being nice and pretending something didn't happen. So, 
you've got things like that in your life that you probably haven't thought much about, and they have impacted you until you deal with them. So because human beings don't forgive like the deity, I had to come up with a metaphor because the human brain learns fastest with metaphors, so I needed a metaphor. So I figured that a cemetery would be a good metaphor because everybody knows what a cemetery is, whether or not they live by the sea. So the beautiful thing about making a cemetery in your mind is that cost is not an issue. You can have the most expensive land and the most expensive cemetery and the most lovely Carrara marble headstones that you can imagine. So I created this cemetery in my brain, and I systematically began to go through, you know, people that I needed to forgive at step two, and I would take that injury, and I'd go dig a hole in the cemetery and bury it, and then commission this beautiful headstone and write the date and the person's name and what happened on it, and I buried it. (laughs) Problem is, you can always go back to the cemetery and find the marker and dig it up anytime you want to, and that's not forgiveness. So I had to get rid of all the headstones in my cemetery. I've turned them into something else. Now I've just got lovely carved statuary everywhere. This is my cemetery. There are no headstones there because we are so prone to go back and dig them up. So get yourself a cemetery, no headstones, bury the injury, and never go back and try to dig it up. So what's the health impact? Ben, uh, Benson's got lots of, of data. What you think about alters levels of chemicals in your brain and body. And we've talked about that several times this week. We're going to talk about it again at 3 o'clock. Every thought you think alters your neurochemistry. It changes the chemical composition in your brain and body, and it's either going to enhance or suppress your energy, and it's either going to enhance or suppress your immune system function, which has everything to do with how healthy you are. So the doctors Arnold Fox and Barry Fox, I think the father died recently. You may be familiar with their names. This is what they wrote. When you say, I forgive you, you're also saying, I want to be healthy. It's exactly what you're saying. The act of forgiving allows the body to turn down the manufacture of catabolic chemicals. Catabolic chemicals means substances like cortisol and adrenaline that when you get an overproduction, they actually kill cells instead of strengthening the brain and body. And it instructs the subconscious to banish negative feelings from the mind. We talked about earlier that negative feelings and negative thoughts create negative electromagnetic energy. Who does it impact first? Yourself, all your own cells, and then it impacts other people as well. So people have sometimes said to me, nobody knows that I'm unforgiving. And I go, yeah, you do. Your brain and body know. And that's going to impact everything in the way it works. So when you're unforgiving, you are angry. I don't care what word you use. Irritated, you know, a little upset, eh, just an edge of bitterness. When you're unforgiving, you're angry. You're angry that it happened to you. And you can actually become addicted to that anger. So that every time you rehearse the event in all of its Broadway glory, you pump adrenaline again. And as adrenaline goes up, what goes up? Dopamine. What's dopamine? Feel better chemical that's involved with every addictive behavior we've ever studied. So people who are unforgiving actually often end up being addicted to adrenaline and dopamine. They're not taking anything from the outside, but they're as addicted to their own body substances as they would be as if they took it from the outside. 
And then usually there's some sadness involved. You flip back between anger and sadness, sometimes even a little fear that it's going to happen again. And then you get decreased levels of serotonin. And serotonin, without serotonin, you are unable to experience joy. And the Bible is filled with admonition about the need to be joyful. Your thoughts are mental pictures. So if you say, I hate so-and-so and I refuse to forgive them, then you put in working memory right here behind your forehead a picture of what unforgivingness means to you. And your subconscious brain will follow that. If you say, I regret what happened, it should never have happened, and nevertheless, I choose to forgive so-and-so, and I'm doing it not for them. Half the time, they don't even want to be forgiven. I'm doing it for me, for the health benefits I receive. And whichever one of these two you choose <clears throat> will dramatically impact your health. I work with a, a researcher in California by the name of Stephen Campbell, and he talks about the lock-on, lock-out principle, which is another metaphor which is really helpful. And he says, your brain locks onto whatever you decide to lock onto, meaning whatever you decide to think about, that's what your brain will lock onto. And because of the principle of congruence, the brain wants everything to match what's in working memory, it locks out all other options. That's all you focus on. But when you say, I refuse to forgive, okay, now you've locked on to unforgiveness, and therefore you've locked out all the forgiveness options. And you might think you've forgiven at an intellectual level, but and you may have, but you certainly have not forgiven at, the, at step two. But when you say, I choose to forgive, the brain locks on to forgiveness, and now you've locked out all the unforgiveness options. It's really simple. It's not always easy, but it is very simple. That's the thing about brain function. You can find something about almost everything I've ever studied in the Bible, and it is just bone simple. Not always easy, but very simple. So the grid study. Because people say, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking, and it does. So I'll give you a couple of examples. And I may have talked about this earlier. I think I might have talked about it last year. I don't know if I did it earlier this week. So they bring people together. They give them this little wire grid, and they tell them, you know, do whatever you want to do with this grid to investigate it and try to do things in sequence and remember what you do. In fact, one of the researchers said, pretend you're an 18-month-old and you've been handed this little grid. What would an 18-month-old do with a little wire grid? Put it in his mouth, first of all. Absolutely. Lick it, chew on it, you know, touch it, turn it over, throw it, crawl over and pick it up again, so on and so forth. So the participants do something with this grid for whatever length of time they were given. And they've got a PET scan camera around each head, and they're taking a brain scan of what it is that's happening in the brain as they're actually manipulating the grid, the little wire grid. And then they send them home. A couple weeks later, they bring them back to the lab, and they expect to be handed something else to look at. And the researchers don't hand them anything to look at. They say, all right, remember when you were here two weeks ago? We want you to pull that experience up in memory, and we want you to recall everything you did with that wire grid as closely as you can in sequence of the steps that you followed. And they've got a PET scan camera around each head, and they take a picture. Then they send everybody home. Now, they, let's say they've got 100 um, participants, and they've got two pictures for each participant, when they were actually handling the grid and when they were just remembering handling the grid, thinking about it. They lay them out in the laboratory, cover up dates and times, and bring in neuroscientists that are, that are skilled at reading PET scans. And they say, okay, this is your job if you want lunch. I'm thinking about food. <laughs> This is your job if you want lunch. 
you go to each of these pairs and you mark which one represents actual physically handling of the grid and which one just represents the virtual memory of handling the grid. And what was the outcome? Couldn't tell the difference. Could not tell the difference in terms of what had happened in the brain. Do you remember there's a text in the Bible that basically says, paraphrase, because I have trouble with rote memorization. Paraphrase, it says, when you look at another human being to lust after them sexually, you've already done it. And people go, no, I haven't, haven't touched them. <laughs> oh, yeah, in terms of brain function, you have. Because it doesn't matter whether you're doing it actually or virtually. Same thing happens in the brain. So here's the health impact. If you choose unforgiveness, and every one of us has still some things to forgive, studies have shown a whole bunch of negative side effects. Here's just a few of them. Increased stress level and muscle tension, which means you're not going to sleep as well because you're not going to relax. Increased level of adrenaline and cortisol. I go back and forth spelling it the Canadian and the American way, so same, same substance. Increased blood pressure and heart rate. Increased risk for depression, heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Suppressed immune system function and impaired neurological function, especially memory functions. If you're starting to lose your memory, you better start thinking about who you need to forgive. And it may be yourself. I had to, I had to forgive myself. Because for lots of years, I would think, boy, I must have been really stupid. What, what should I have done differently? Where should I not have gone? What, sh you know, must have, must have something that I could have done to prevent being molested. Oh, come on. You can't always prevent everything. So I had to forgive myself for being human and being unable to protect myself from the event. That's a pretty good feeling when you forgive yourself. If, on the other hand, you choose decisional and emotional forgiveness, two steps, now you get all kinds of positive outcomes. Healthier relationships, huge. Lower blood pressure. Sometimes people can actually even go off blood pressure medication or at least seriously reduce the amount they take. Less anxiety, stress, and hostility. Fewer symptoms of depression, Lower risk of alcohol and other substance abuse. Increase compassion, kindness, and peace. Increased mental, physical, and spiritual health. That's where I'm going. That's huge. So the summary, according to Benson, is pretty clear. Unforgiveness results in negative outcomes to your health and overall well-being, period. It may even shorten your life. Forgiveness results in positive outcomes to both your brain and body, uh, receiving forgiveness for your own negative consequence behaviors, because we've all made mistakes, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. But the Bible says that if we want to be forgiven, what do we, have, do we already have had to have done? Forgive others. It doesn't say, I'll forgive you, and then you forgive somebody else. It says that I will be forgiven as I have already forgiven. And certainly increased health and well-being. So what are the reasons to forgive based on Benson's research? It's the right thing to do. Come on. None of us is flawless. I'm sure you know there are two definitions in many dictionaries for the word perfect. And we have this idea that we need to be perfect. And many people think that means flawless because that's the first definition of perfect. Okay, we're not going to be flawless. We weren't even created flawlessly. Every brain is damaged and dysfunctional. If you think yours isn't, it's a sure sign it is. <laughs> so every brain is damaged. Where was I going with that? I was just thinking of a damaged brain I met last night. See, that's the problem with making pictures while you're thinking. <laughs> you start thinking about the picture. Hmm. Oh, it'll come, and when it does, I'll tell you. So it's the right thing to do. 
you, I want to f- receive forgiveness. In order to do that, I already have to have forgiven. I want to be healthy. I want to live as long as I can on this planet. And there's some researchers who say, if you don't take care of your health, and one of the ways not to take care of your health is to be unforgiving, you can shorten your life by about 25 years. I want to lecture till I'm 100 and then have 19 or 20 good years of retirement. (laughs) There's some reason you're laughing. (laughs) Recent research at UC Berkeley, Dr. Paris Kidd, even with the amount of pollution in the United States today, and there's quite a bit both uh, environmentally and uh, personally, if you take care of your brain and immune system, you could probably easily live to be 120. Because getting healthy and forgiving and all of that stuff actually impacts the shortening of your telomeres. And, you know, when they finally are gone, then the cell dies. So slowing down the rate at which your telomeres shorten is huge. To keep your energy levels positive, because positive thoughts create positive electromagnetic energy, which impact you first and then everybody else. And it's because you benefit the most. That's a very healthy selfishness. And unfortunately, many well-meaning but unenlightened Christians think that that's not something to attain. Yes, it is. Christ was very selfish. There's lots of stories about that. Healthy selfishness. He was um, talking to 5,000 people on the edge of the lake one day. Got tired, been a hard week. He says to two or three of his best friends, you know, go pull the boat up. We're out of here. We need a few days of rest. He gets in the boat and sails off and leaves 5,000 people there that he could have helped. Oh, that's very healthy selfishness because you can only help people if you're well. And he needed the break and he needed the rest and he took it. So forgiveness is healthy selfishness. I'm not doing it for the other person. I'm doing it for me. And people sometimes say, well, what if, what if they're dead? So get yourself a chair, <laughs> shine a light on it, put a, put a sign up there with the person's name on it, and forgive them. They don't have to know. They don't even have to want to be forgiven. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. So it doesn't matter. So a couple of observations, basically from being a preacher's kid. And then studying some history. I do love history. I just don't like the way most people teach it. I wish that I could have been Robin's student. I think I would have loved history. The brain is innately spiritual. Researchers are pretty clear about that. They think there might even possibly be a spirituality center in the temporal lobe in the right hemisphere. Not sure. But the, the human brain is innately spiritual. What is spirituality? It's an ability to experience a sense of awe. And you decide what you feel awestruck about. I, I feel a sense of awe when I hear certain kinds of music. Um, you know, when I see a sunset. Uh, when I think about my relationship with God, who is actually now my best friend. Amazing. With my history, sometimes I was surprised that I was still a member of the Adventist Church. But it is possible. You don't have to like or agree with everything. But I'll tell you, that's the sense of awe. And the human brain is innately spiritual. It is not innately religious. Affiliation with religion is a choice. And the ideal, of course, is you affiliate, and that helps you with your spirituality. It would be really nice if that happened all the time. It doesn't always happen. It's sometimes because of us and sometimes because we let other people impact us. But the brain is innately spiritual. So people who are very spiritual 
tend to forgive at both levels. Step one and step two. People who are often very religiously rigid, uh, but not very spiritual, tend to be very much less forgiving. Sometimes they forgive at step one, sometimes they don't even forgive at step one. But you almost never see them forgiving at step two. And they're more critical, judgmental, and vindictive. And most of the wars that you think about that have happened in the last X number of years have to do with religiously rigid bodies of people who are punishing others because they think they don't have the same perspective as they do. And that's very, very scary because there is nothing more lethal than a religiously rigid individual who's not spiritual, who thinks that they are now responsible for punishing people who think differently from the way they think. That's not any human being's responsibility. So forgiveness is about you. This is what the studies, in a nutshell, have clearly shown. The one who is unforgiving always suffers the most, and you will suffer with poor health. The one to be forgiven doesn't need to know. They don't even need to be alive. They certainly have not, don't need to ask you for forgiveness. And the one doing the forgiveness benefits the most, period. So here's the guidelines. Know that human forgiveness is far less about others and far more about you. Forgive at both decisional and emotional levels. And I'll tell you, decisional is easier. And sometimes you have to work a little harder at the emotional step. But, oh boy, it's worth it. Bury what you forgive in your cemetery and make sure there are no headstones. Stop continually rehearsing what you bury, for heaven's sake. If you really have forgiven them, it's down there somewhere in the cemetery, unless you live by the ocean and you want to visualize you're dumping it at the bottom of the sea. And above all, this is all about prospering mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, financially, educationally. Prosper and be in very good health. So I pray that you will... Take some time to think about this, because I would be willing to bet you if I was a betting person. Everyone everyone in this room has things they haven't forgiven, or they've only forgiven in step one. Then they're sure that they can never forgive so-and-so for whatever. Take another look at it, because it's all about you and your health. Have a good Sabbath.